Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the London Library, in which interesting people tell us about the books that have shaped their lives. I'm Philip Marshall, Director of the London Library, and today's guest is Neil Pearson. Neil, welcome to the library. Thank you very much. Many people will know you first and foremost as an actor, of course, but you're also a rare bookseller, a writer, and president of the Independent Libraries Association. So books have obviously played a really big part in your life. When did that start? Uh, Very early. And uh, although I couldn't have articulated it at the time, I think as well as the contents of books that I was reading from five, six onwards, I was also starting to fetishise the object itself. Uh, Looking back, I now realise that as well as a book's contents, I liked its heft. I realise now that I'm as avid a reader as I ever was, but also a book collector and a book dealer, as you said, uh, that that very much was the seeding of both of those preoccupations in later life. Wonderful. Well, you've given us a, a, a lovely selection of books to talk about today, so I'm really looking forward to getting into those. First one on the list, Anthony Buckridge, Jennings, the Jennings series. I'm going to pass you there just one from our shelves, which is... Uh, a 1953 Jennings book. Yeah. Were you um, reading these in your childhood? Yes, I was reading these around 9, 10. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Buckridge's Jennings run, which uh, were written in the sort of 50s and into the 60s, detailed the boarding school adventures of uh, Jennings, his central character. And they made school, or the prospect of school, fun. And round about nine or ten, I came to realise that as far as school was concerned, I wasn't getting out of this for a while. And although I was leaving primary school, I had to go to this thing called big school. And if I had to do that, and apparently I did, then this was the sort of school I wanted to go to. Um, Of course, it was antiquated even then, and it was romanticised in the novelisation But it was a school where, masters apart, there were no grown-ups. It's a school where you could have um, tuck shops and midnight feasts after lights out. And you could go into town and you could get your head stuck in railings and you could get punished (laughs) and uh, gated. All of this stuff felt um, rather exciting. And uh, I needed school um, sexed up for me. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a... a series of books that did it for me. So I, I went to my mum and said, can I go to a school like this, please? Now, I was brought up in um, comfort in that we were happy, but it was a it was a working-class, single-parent family, and my mother could not possibly have uh, been able to afford to pay for a public school education, and as far as she knew, um, the only boarding schools there were were public schools. Then she did some homework and discovered this place called Wolverston Hall, which I did eventually go to. It was a boarding school, but it was within the state school system. It was run by the Inner London Education Authority. It was a selective school. It was a grammar school. But uh, I passed whatever exams were necessary, passed the interview, which I did in County Hall. And off I went to this um, extraordinary place, which has been described... Um, as a poor man's Eton, 
Uh, it was set up as a social experiment in the 1950s. And uh, I made a small program about it later in life. And Peter Donaldson, the BBC4 uh, newsreader, also went there, earlier generation, but gave me a great quote. He said it took kids from the Labour heartlands, plonked them in a conservative environment, gave them a liberal education, and turned out anarchists. And uh, these boys, and it was a boys' school, can be found scattered through all sorts of walks of life. And it inculcated into me um, not so much the virtues of tuck shops and midnight feasts, although there were those. <laughs> it inculcated into me the feeling that there was nothing in life that was not for you because of where you came from, uh, what your parents did, how many parents you had. I think it was the making of me. It, was certainly, um, it certainly gave me the chutzpah to believe that the life I've led is possible. And I'm eternally grateful to that school for that. I'm eternally grateful to my mother for having found it. And um, all of that goes back to the Jennings books. Now, I make no great claims for their place in literature. Uh, I haven't reread them for many, many years. I probably should. But uh, I do know that the intersection of this particular part of my reading history and that particular part of my development was absolutely crucial. And so uh, I continue to hold them close. So you leave school thinking that the world is your oyster, anything's possible for you. And your next book selection is Tropic of Cancer. Okay. So how do we get from <laughs> Jennings, you leaving <laughs> there your school? There were some years between. <laughs> <laughs> but, so tell, well, tell us about that. How, how did you um, step out into the world from school and what well, did you do next? Um, by the time I was doing my first term of the two years of A-levels, uh, I'd auditioned for drama school, Central, in London, and got in. And um, my mother, uh, with whom I'd done a deal, I said, I want to do this. I want to um, act. She said, well, well, waste of a brain. You might, you know, really difficult. Um, hardly anyone works in that. Like, yeah, I know, I know. So we did a trade-off and that I would get the A-levels and I would continue to work hard. And once that had all been done, I would go to drama school when everyone else went to university. I went to drama school, as I say, I was barely 18, barely 17 when I auditioned, barely 18 when I went. Um, and it was a big culture shock for me. Um, because the average age of my year at drama school was probably 23, 24. Now, that's only sort of five or six years, but when you're 18, that's a lot. That's a third of your life, and people have lived in those years in a way you can't conceive of. All the girls weren't girls. They were women. They were terrifying, and um, I, I felt I had to uh, grow up quick. By the time I was just about to leave, which would make me 20, 21, um, I'd found Henry Miller. And Henry Miller's life, I think, has always been more interesting to me than his work. This was a man who, at the age of uh, early 30s, had decided his life wasn't the life he wanted to lead, had left New York and gone to Paris to write. This was a man whose first book was published when he was 43, Tropic of Cancer, and who by the time he died had published over 70 books. This was a man who I could 
understand, given that everyone I knew was telling me, you're doing the wrong thing. And I found Miller at a time when I needed someone I could look to as someone who had gone his own way and taken his own decision. Uh, now, looking back, possibly Henry Miller is not the finest mentor for someone in their early 20s. Uh, and there were a lot of mistakes I could have made by following there. Uh, also, it's true to say that uh, of all the front-rank writers, and I think Miller is, with all thoughts, a front-rank writer, I can't think of anyone more in need of an editor's pencil. There is also no doubt that the women in his fiction or semi-fiction um, are problematic. Uh, not even problem. It's not a problem to say that you know it is a, a view of women and sex that uh, now he would be called upon quite rightly to defend. I know all of these things, and yet. Um, I can think of no writer with the possible exception of Hemingway better at planting a character on a street corner uh, in the morning without a cent in his pocket and not knowing what the day is going to bring that can fill you with excitement at that prospect of not knowing. It's not something to be worried about. It's not something to fear. It's something to embrace. Now, at 2021, going into acting with all the advice in my ears from people who I respected, admired and loved telling me not to do it, that was galvanizing. I wanted to show you today the library's copy of uh, Tropic of Cancer. Um, we've got a 1948 one. Uh -huh. And uh, as you were saying, it took a while for the book to be published. And then, of course, when it was published, it was banned uh, in the United States. This is the uh, title page, tells me, uh, a copy of the Obelisk Press edition um, published in 1948 by Les Editions du Chêne in Paris. Um, Tropic of Cancer was first published in Paris in 1934 by uh, a man called Jack Cahane, who was uh, a Mancunian who set up a, after the First World War, he set up a publishing house in Paris, which took advantage of the difference between what was acceptable to publish in Paris, in France, and what was acceptable to publish in the UK. He published in English, which kept him under the radar of censors in France, and uh, took books that had been um, a success to scandal in uh, Britain, but had been banned, um, The Well of Loneliness, for example, uh, and used that publicity for his own edition, which he brought out in Paris. Um, that was in 1934. He died on the outbreak of war in 1939, but his son, Maurice Chirodias, continued the business and used the Obelisk Press imprint in 1948 um, to publish this edition. He'd actually been publishing editions of Tropical Cancer from about... 45, I think, and they had been sold in their tens of thousands to American squaddies coming back through France after the end of the war um, because this was known as a quote-unquote dirty book that delivered, that had the stuff. Uh, and so um, he, very good businessman that he was, uh, published 
this edition, this would probably have gone through the hands of several uh, American GIs returning after the war and uh, has found its way back here. It certainly predated the first legitimate UK edition, which wasn't published until the 1960s. This is, of course, your your specialist area in, in, in book collecting. Um, let's start with how you got into book collecting, and I think that relates to your next book choice, Anthony Pohl's Dance the Music of Time series. It does. Um, I left drum school in 1980 and worked in uh, rep and then in bigger parts in rep and then smaller parts in London and then little bits on telly and then bigger parts in London. It was a sort of unpredictably um, evenly incremental uh, progression in the business. By summer of 1984, I was working in the West End, in the first West End show I've, I'd ever done, uh, in Loot by Joe Orton. And um, Leonard Roster was playing Truscott and playing it brilliantly. Uh, Paul McGann and I were in the were playing the boys, Gemma Craven, Patty O'Connell, great cast, and a great first job in town. Because I knew that this was going to run, uh, I started to read The Dance of the Music of Time, 12-volume sequence by Anthony Pohl, uh, knowing that I was working three hours a day uh, most of the week and that I would have time to do it and the continuity of time to do it, which that sort of book cycle requires. I was on book 11, which I think is called Books Do Furnish a Room, which which is telling, uh, and was reading it walking through Cecil Court on my way to a matinee on Wednesday and looked up and in one of the rare bookshops, as I now know them, in Cecil Court was a copy of the 12th and final volume, Hearing Secret Harmonies. And it was beautiful and hardcover and uh, a sort of gleaming dust wrapper. Uh, and it was in the shop window. And I'd been reading, obviously, just the paperbacks I'd got from the bookshop. And I thought this might be a suitably ceremonial way to finish reading this cycle. So I went in and um, asked about the book in the in the window. And uh, they explained what it was. And I asked how much it was. And they told me. And that was the first time I said what I have now said to dealers many times over the years, how much? (laughs) And uh, it was £30. And the notion of first edition and condition and um, provenance and bibliography, all of these were rudimentarily explained to me. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. Uh, It was the first time I'd had any sort of disposable income. And uh, so I bought it. Now, of course, having bought that, you now immediately need the other 11. <laughs> and it was while collecting the other 11 over many years, because the earlier they get, the more than as now, the pricier they become because of the print runs and the scarcity and so on. I'd started to buy other books too. It was Henry Miller who led me to Paris uh, and Jack Kahane, who we've already discussed. And so I started to collect. And what's great about Collecting books, as opposed to, say, collecting art, is that there's more than one of everything. It's quite an egalitarian collecting area. You don't need the money you need to buy Impressionist paintings, to buy even at the very top end of the book market. 
and because there's more than one of, of everything and because writers don't just write books, they write pieces for magazines, they write essays and so on, uh, you can pootle around in the foothills for not much money and start to put together a collection that is uniquely its own and uniquely yours. Anthony Pohl himself had a connection with the, the London Library you may, may not have known um, before now. He, um, he actually joined in 1928 and stayed a member for the rest of his life. So he okay. was a member for 72 years. Yeah, I was uh, thinking. I mean, he must have joined in his, what, late teens? 20s? Uh, he, he would have been, he died at the age of 94, I think. Yeah. So in 2000. Because he was a contemporary of Orwell's. Uh, yes, yeah, so he would have been in his early 20s, I think, yeah. when he joined. Yeah. And uh, he had started writing, but he hadn't started on the, the 12 books in the series that he's probably most famous for. So he was a member during the, the time that he was writing that. Your next book choice takes us back to Paris. Noel Riley Fitch, who wrote Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation, a history of literary Paris in the 20s and 30s. So the period that you've fallen in love with, yeah. really... T tell us about this book. It's very much my time machine period. Uh, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, but 1920s and my particular period, 1930s, so let's say interwar Paris, is very much where uh, I feel my spiritual home lies. This was a place where it was fantastic to be young. You needed a bit of money, of course. You always need a bit of money. But... What a place to be young. Uh, it was a place where if you had dollars or pounds in your pocket, you were rich as Croesus. The exchange rate was fantastically favourable to those two currencies. There was plenty of accommodation. Food and drink were cheap. Drink was available, very important point if you're coming from the United States, which of course had prohibition in place at the time. If you were gay, you could live discreetly but openly. That was okay. If you were black, you would probably feel more at home in Paris than you would in Chicago. If you had aspirations to write, you could do it. And if you had aspirations to write something difficult, you could write that with the expectation of it being published. Uh, this was not possible in the UK or the US. So I needed a map. Once I, I'd already got the interest, I'd already got the excitement, I needed someone to tell me where to look, to show me what I didn't know, to point me in directions of new reading. And Noel Riley Fitch's book um, fitted that bill in spades. It's a phenomenally well-researched scholarly, rigorous book, but forget all of those adjectives. What it mostly is, is enthusiastic. It's in love with its subject. It's very difficult, I think, to find books of such rigor written by people whose expertise is absolutely undoubted, who manage to retain in every single sentence an indication of just how much they love this stuff. An interesting life um, that Sylvia Beach had uh, as well, um, and her shop, Shakespeare and Company in, yeah. in Paris, um, which um, seems to have been a, a gathering point, obviously, for, for writers coming into the area. But what I was interested by was the fact that it is a, 
a bookshop that was also part lending library. Yes, it started as a lending library because um, Beach realised that um, the people she was catering to tended not to have much money. These were struggling writers. And so she turned it into a, a lending library. One of her very first uh, subscribers was Gertrude Stein and uh, another was James Joyce. Uh, the place became a meeting ground, a post-restaurant, and also a stage door. Uh, I find it very touching that many of the writers who had no name at all at the time, hadn't published anything, Hemingway was one of them, would hang around, very obviously browsing with no intention to buy, waiting for James Joyce to come in. Mm -hmm. They wanted to meet the man. I don't know what they would say to them. I don't think they knew what they, they would say to him, but they wanted to be in the same room as him. So the place became uh, a place of pilgrimage because Joyce was known to be there and be there often. Mm -hmm. uh, but it certainly was the headquarters of the Paris expatriate movement. And Sylvia Beach, this tiny bird-like woman who opened this bookshop and found herself eventually publishing the single most important literary work of the 20th century, James Joyce's Ulysses, um, was uh, a pocket-sized heroine uh, of the period and of literature in general. She uh, eventually published six or seven books, uh, but what she mostly did was provide a meeting place for, a, a, at first, a diverse collection of writers and would-be writers, and later an entire literary movement. Lovely. Well, I think it's wonderful when, when libraries can uh, and bookshops can provide that sort of community spirit amongst their users. So tell me how your two careers of acting and book dealing have now come together. Anyone who collects seriously, as I have uh, over the last 30, 35 years, deals. So setting up the business, Neil Pearson Rare Books, the online business, was really just a formalization of what I'd already been doing for some time and opening it out to people who weren't in my address book. When you do that, of course, uh, one of the incidental joys of doing it is that your knowledge necessarily broadens. It has to. So that was uh, enriching. As well as dealing in books, because of my day job's address book, I found myself dealing more and more in performing arts books and then scripts, so not technically books at all, and bits and pieces like that. That led to doing whole archives. We're currently uh, engaged in finding a home for Alan Rickman's archive. We're working with um, other writers, directors, who uh, perhaps shouldn't mention by name at the moment, but that sort of work breeds work. And of course now you are also president of the Independent Libraries Association. Is there a particular love that you have of libraries as well as books generally? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, th and I think I realise that, like everyone, that libraries are under threat and that the libraries existing um, in um, uh, boroughs, the borough library, is, is something that um, it's an easy place to cut when cuts are deemed necessary. And when I was asked uh, a little more than two years ago now to become president of the Independent Libraries Association, I didn't have to think. I was delighted to be uh, asked to be involved and to get to know more about the independent library system because it's not one I knew really. I continue to have faith in my species for as long as it continues to think 
that a place you can go which is quiet and where nothing active is happening is a good thing. We need a place to think. We need it as individuals and we need it as a species. God knows we need it as a species. And I find them calming. I find them inspiring. Go, go in hordes uh, and uh, enjoy these spaces as, as I've done. And I've also been particularly gratified, and this is not blowing smoke up you, that the London Library itself has started to play a much more central role in the Independent Libraries Association. Let's draw to a close with the final book on your list. Hard Rain Falling by Don Carpenter. I'll pass you our, our copy, which I took off the shelves earlier. This is our, our first edition, 1966. It is a novel set in Portland, Oregon, and then in its later stages in uh, California, West Coast then. Uh, it tells the tale of Jack Levitt. He's our central character. He is not even brought up on the wrong side of the tracks. His childhood is catastrophic and he becomes a small-time criminal and uh, a pool hall um, hustler. He meets uh, a black boy called Billy Lansing uh, and they become friends and rivals on the pool hall scene. They meet again later in prison. They meet later still again in prison and spoiler alert uh, an extraordinary turn of events they become lovers and um, what happens then I won't spoil but the subject matter is the first thing to talk about with this book it is a an interracial love story amongst many other things set in the 1950s written in the mid 1960s so it predates the civil rights movement. Um, it is a book that has the sensibility of 1970s independent American cinema, that sort of grit in the oyster, um, outsider, outlier feel. Badlands, um, Alice doesn't live here anymore, that sort of feel. Uh, and was written in 1966. It preempts major literary and social and cultural um, movements, and does it in a masterful literary style that brings to mind, for me at least, uh, John Updike, if John Updike had ever ventured into this sort of world. It's a novel set in the world of crime that is not a crime novel. It's a milieu that is bleak and uh, hard, and you root for these characters without any expectation that your rooting for them will, in, will enable them to find happiness. And yet when it comes, it's like this shaft of light. It's, it's an extraordinary piece of writing from someone who was way ahead of his time, who should have been fated during his lifetime. He became very ill in the late 80s and early 90s and um, killed himself without knowing, or at least having been told, I'm sure he knew, just how great uh, this novel was. It's criminally underknown. I've read the book myself, ah. and I, uh, your recommendation, actually, and I, I, th I thought it was wonderful, fabulous. Well, thank you ever so much for sharing your books with us and talking us through, really, what was, what was your life signposted by books, as you said. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I had a great time.
Thank you for listening. And to find out more about the London Library, please visit our website at londonlibrary.co.uk. Please check the links in the show notes and rate us and subscribe.